through 25 seasons. Hey! 4,561 episodes. I believe the Oprah Winfrey Show was one of the greatest classrooms in the world. I really never thought of it that way. The aha moments, the breakthroughs, the LOLs, the connections, the occasional ugly cry. I miss him so terribly. I miss him every single minute. The moments that mattered. The eye-opening life lessons. Never allow them to take you somewhere else. I'm bringing them back. It's time to open the vault. I've personally chosen these classic episodes to share with you again. Every single person you ever will meet shares that common desire. They want to know, do you see me? Do you hear me? Does what I say mean anything to you? You are listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. Imagine this, waking up one day and finding out that your entire life is a lie, that your husband isn't the man you thought he was, that your marriage is really a sham. What if your spouse had led a secret life and you had no idea? Well, if you ever wonder if you're missing some of the red flags in your relationship, you probably are. This is Barbara, and for years her husband, Michael, a prominent oral surgeon, was concealing a really grisly secret that would eventually become headline news. Take a look at this story. When I first met Michael, um, my heart fluttered, and I was like this silly little giddy schoolgirl. He had this strong, silent way about him. I was deeply in love with him. We were soulmates. People used to call uh, me and Michael Ken and Barbie. We were this tall, beautiful couple. It was almost like a dream. Like he was just this perfect guy. He just, he exuded the strength. Michael had a thriving dental practice off of Fifth Avenue in New York. He was a family man, a father of two, who enjoyed his upscale suburban life. My husband was on a, a great track, a very successful path of a business that helped others. But Michael also had his demons. I found out that he had a drug problem when his office called me and told me he was passed out on the floor and he had a syringe in his arm. He struggled with drug addiction and eventually lost his medical license because of it, and that was just the beginning. It was July of 2000, and he never came home. So about midnight, I decided to put my kids in the car and to go look for him. I came upon flashing lights and I saw Michael standing there with the policeman on each side of him, uh, handcuffed and being pushed into the, to the patrol car. And I started yelling, Michael, Michael. Barbara realized Michael wasn't in the car alone. He was with another woman. I had found out at that moment that he had a girlfriend. I knew for sure that they had had the affair. When I first found out that he had cheated on me, I didn't want to believe it. I was shattered. My entire idea of love, marriage, was shattered. So Barbara's husband's drug use and alleged affairs would not prepare her for the horror. There was more to come. Take a look. After losing his medical license, Barbara's husband, Michael Mastro Marino, started a business selling body tissue for transplants and bone grafts. She thought 
he was back on the fast track, making more than $4 million in four years. What Barbara didn't know was that what started out as a legitimate business had turned into an illegal operation, and the police were closing in. I had never seen anything like this. It was evil. Michael was actually making his money stealing and selling skin, bones, and other body parts, without permission from grieving families. Karen Delray's father was one of his victims. They took his skin. They took his bones, arms, legs. They took cartilage around his heart. They cut him up pretty much piece by piece. This is one of the sickest crimes that has ever been committed. Mastro Marino and his team dissected more than a 1,000 dead bodies. Even more disturbing, they knowingly sold tissue and bone infected with hepatitis, HIV, and cancer. Thousands of people were put at risk. X-rays show they even replaced stolen bones with plastic pipes so loved ones couldn't detect mutilation. And to disguise missing tissue, corpses were stuffed with garbage. On February 23, 2006, Barbara was shocked when her husband was arrested by the police. Despite the charges, she stood by Michael's side. He was my husband. I've lived this life with him. He told me he was innocent. I believed him. Barbara's never spoken publicly about this until today. You believed him then. What do you now believe or know? My life with him was an entire lie. I, everything that I believed wasn't, wasn't so. Everything is, is, is not sacred. Mm. Um, and when you find out the truth, Barbara, does it make everything that was feel like a lie? So when you find out the truth. Yes. Does it make all the good times also feel like a lie? All, all of my memories are, are not sacred. They're all not so. They're not so. I, I look through pictures upon pictures, and all of them don't mean what they used to. They're, they're all a lie. And you know, I just, I just want to be able to help women out there be able to avoid my pain. OK. How could we, ha or other women, have helped you at that time if, in fact, you're in love, you not only are in love, but you believe that this is your soulmate? What could anyone have said to you or shown you? I can say that as friends and uh, people around you that love you and do see something, keeping it from your loved one is not, or your friend is not the wisest thing for them. You know, I think sharing what you know whether they may not want to hear it, mm -hmm. is, is just make sure that. So you think other people knew things and could have Absolutely. shared? Absolutely. They knew. Yes. Like what? They, they had maybe seen him with another woman because there were several affairs. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what I've, I've heard so many women say is so shattering, is to know, actually, when I, when, when I was talking to Elizabeth Edwards about her husband, John Edwards, she said one of the most painful things was recognizing that everybody else knew. Other people knew. And so she, you're walking into the office. They all know. So that betrayal becomes multiplied. Yes, but I, I always held on to my dignity. And that's something that every, every person, not just women, every person should do is hold mm -hmm. on to their dignity when they feel that they've been betrayed. Yes. So, the, so this was a twofold. So you're, you're going out to look for your husband. Why were you going out to look for him? You put the boys in the car, and you said you went out to look for him. Why? Uh, there was a little bit of suspicion about his affair. 
-hmm. Michael was supposed to come home that night and actually speak to me. Uh -huh. uh, and we were supposed to talk things out a little bit. I knew he was having problems with, with a drug, mm -hmm. um, but I, I, he didn't come home. And I felt, you know what, I'm going to go out and find him. But I was saying it's always a bad moment. We were just talking about this other day. It's always a bad moment when you are in the car yourself going to follow somebody or going to find out if they are where they say they are because it means the trust has already been broken, right? Yeah, and, and it was funny because I wasn't, I wasn't sure until I was going to find them and see them together, and I almost felt like I was betraying him because I was sneaking around behind his back because that wasn't my yeah. way. Because it then makes you become somebody that you don't want to be. Right. The lies do, the lies do. So the affair, let's set the affair aside. When the charges were placed against your husband for these heinous crimes, you were one of those women that we see on TV standing by their man. You're standing up and saying, you know, what, I'm his wife, why, because? But you'd already been betrayed, right? I had been betrayed and I thought he made a mistake. I did not know at that time that he had cheated on me from the moment we were dating. Mm -hmm. So of course I didn't see all the signs that most women would try to find. Mm -hmm. I didn't see them. So you thought this woman or this woman, yes. uh, you had discovered that affair and you all were gonna to try to make your marriage work after that affair? He begged me and said that until his dying breath, he was going to try to get me back. Okay. And uh, every woman wants to hear that. Right. And so you're, you're moving forward with your, with your marriage and trying to make it work. And so what did you first think when you heard these charges for these heinous crimes? I actually uh, thought that he could be innocent because as, as it happened, he actually told us that he could be the fall guy for someone else, as his uh, records uh, were uh, confiscated from his office and, and things were seized. Uh, he actually told us that he was probably the fall guy for someone else. So he always had a story. As we mm -hmm. went, mm -hmm. he lied to his attorney, he lied to me, he lied to everyone that, he, that crossed his path, actually. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. This is where I used to live. I feel in so much anger that all this has happened. When I look at this house, I have a lot of very painful memories. It brings back uh, a feeling of false security, false happiness. The house was beautiful. There was about 8,000 square feet on, on three floors, and it was a great life. It was very, very easy, it was secure. Michael's arrest left Barbara in financial ruin. She was forced to sell her home. Some of the money from the sale went to pay her husband's legal fees. The rest went to his victims. Right now we're at my storage unit. This is my past life right here. When I look at these things here, I think of how I was led into this life with Michael. And to make him happy, I spent all this money that could have gone to my children's future. So I'm here with Barbara, whose ex-husband Michael led a secret life. He made millions cutting up stolen corpses and selling them illegally. Uh, Karen Delray's 74-year-old father, James, was one of uh, Mastro Marino's uh, victims. She joins us on Skype from uh, Hazlett, New Jersey. And uh, Karen, you've been listening to Barbara. Yes, I have. Yeah. What do you want to say? You know, 
you made millions, you and your husband made millions of dollars and on victims such as my father and my family, it's hard to sit here and, and listen. I know that you sound like you don't have any closure. You know, what was done to our father cannot be undone. This isn't, this wasn't like somebody broke, a stranger broke in my home and stole a ring. You know, they stole parts of my father, my family, my memories, all of it. And what do you want to say to her? Karen, I want to tell you that I cannot apologize for Michael. He made the decisions that he did, and I did not know what was going on. But I can apologize from my heart to all of you. And uh, although I'm a victim in a way, there's no comparison to, to what you and countless others and recipients of his tissue will ever have to live with. There's no comparison of what you have to uh, face and the desecration that your father, the memory of your father, and um, the recipients, they have to live with the fear of not knowing if they're gonna be sick the very next week because of Michael's crimes. Has but Michael, I, has he ever apologized? I believe that he, he, I wasn't at court, but I believe he tried, he did that in court. I'm mm -hmm. not sure. Yeah. I believe he did. Michael is only sorry when he's caught. When he's caught. Yeah, yeah. and that goes for everything he's done. Karen, how did you find out that your father had been so desecrated? I got a phone call from a detective, and they had asked me if I had signed an autonomical donation and if I had a brother, Victor. And um, I told her, no, I never did. My dad had lived with me, and I had made all his arrangements. And they came to my office the next day to show me paperwork. And in, in my horror, they made up that I had a brother and forged a death certificate, forged what he died of, forged the time he died. Everything was changed on it. Uh -huh. It was, it was a, hard, a hard thing to find out. Explain to us uh, how that Michael was able to get your father's body then. How, how did that happen? Was he working with funeral homes? Is, how, how did that happen? My dad was a Korean War vet, and he was very specific as to what his wishes were. One of the things that is hard for me is that I, I, I made promises to him that I can't even keep anymore because one of the things he didn't want was an autopsy. And my dad was a direct cremation. And what had happened was I contacted a local crematorium who I guess had partnered with a funeral home in Newark. And they went and picked up his body. He died at a hospital and he, they, he, they picked up his body and I had the opportunity to talk to the person who harvested my father. He's been pretty much the only person that has ever given me answers. I went to visit him in jail and found out exactly what they had done. And, and just, it was, uh, it's just been a nightmare. Yeah. It sounds like a nightmare. It sounds like a nightmare. And so we can only say, you know, I'm sorry sounds so hollow and shallow, but we're all sorry that your family had to go through this. It's just, it is a heinous, horrible nightmare. I mean, somebody else was just charged doing this in North Carolina. And somehow on a, on a federal level, we have to get laws changed so that this doesn't happen ever again. And I think at that point, maybe I'll have practical closure that I know I made some differences that no other family has to go through this. But emotionally, I don't think there'll ever be closure. Thank you, Karen. Thank you for talking to us today.
Barbara's husband, Michael Mastro Marino, pled guilty to body stealing, forgery, grand larceny, and corruption. And he's serving 25 to 75 years in prison for his crime. So when he pled guilty to that, what did you then think? At that point, I basically, I, I knew that he was guilty. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, having gone to the, the DA's office to meet him, he had admitted everything to me. And I had asked him why. Mm -hmm. And he told me it was greed. And he... Uh, he just said greed? He just said it was greed. I, I got greedy and I, um, you know, he really didn't give much of an explanation. I mean, every, everything from him I, I, I've come to know is a lie. So um, at that point, I just knew that uh, I needed to get away from him. How are your boys? How are your sons? They're, they're doing well, thank you, uh, as well as can be expected. And uh, my older one does not want to speak to him, mm -hmm. which is understandable. And my younger one, as long as mommy's around, uh, he's OK. He's going forward. They're both going forward in their lives. And I would say that uh, I've told them on different occasions, just if you want to see daddy, I will make sure that you can. I'll take you. I'll never keep you from him. And I will never force you to go see him. So, so far, they both have not wanted to write him or see him. Mm -hmm. That may change in the future, but. Um, How long has it been since he's been in jail? He's been in jail for two years. Mm -hmm. And my eldest son had actually visited him in Rikers. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to go see his father, not to tell him he missed him. He wanted to know why. Why and, he did this to yeah. his family. Why he did this to his so family. So he sat and he asked his father, why? Why'd you do it, Dad? Why did you cheat on Mommy? Why, why'd you do the drugs? Why did you do the crime? And he just said four simple words, I made a mistake. No elaboration, nothing. And I was furious. That's what he said to his son. Yes, I was furious. And I actually. Um, asked him right in front of him. I said, that's all you have to say. That's it. I made a mistake. And he, he just didn't elaborate. He said he was sorry, and that was it. So you know, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite lessons is from uh, Maya Angelou, who said to me years ago, um, when people show you who they are, believe them the first time. And she said, baby, that your problem is it takes you a few more times. But if you would, take, if you would believe them the first time, like when somebody lies to you, that means that person is a liar. When somebody cheats on you, it means they are capable of cheating. They are people who are capable of being deceitful. What are the red flags that you saw then that you would know now? He used to, there was a point where he always went out at night. Uh, he, he loved the nightlife. He was always a homebody, and all of a sudden he liked to go out. He had different shoes that I never saw him wear. It was the trendy kind of shoes, and it was always this straight kind of guy. Uh, it, the problem is, is Michael was a surgeon. So it, it was very difficult for me to see the signs. Of, of he, he was always on call. Yeah. So you know, I would say if, if things look out of the ordinary or um, things become more frequent, and that's what happened. Things are becoming more frequent. And I would see all these signs, and I'd talk to him, and I'd ask him, and I'd think I'm crazy. He'd tell me, Barbara, you're crazy. I'm here as much as I can be. And he try, always tried to talk me into him not being that guy, that doctor that cheats, or that husband that cheats. And I always used to see little signs of like the feeling, not even like a sign, but like a feeling. Yeah. And, uh, and I should have I followed my instinct. Follow your instinct, yeah. basically. Feelings are powerful. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Barbara.
So what would you do if you found out the person you love was living a secret life? The stories you're hearing today are extreme, but if every now and then you feel a little red flag in your relationship, remember Julie. We were together uh, about 16 years. The first time we met was a holiday party, Christmas time. And then a few weeks later, I went to a different party and there he was again. It seemed like it was meant to be. He was very charming, very outgoing. He was sort of the kind of guy that, you know, lights the room up. We got married about three years after we'd met. When I look at this picture, I remember uh, I was incredibly in love and he looked really handsome in his tuxedo and it was a great day. And then we had our daughter. He was a very loving dad. He was very affectionate and very fun. He hadn't been feeling well for a few days and one morning he, you know, he got up. It was a very ordinary day and uh, I was down in my office and then I heard a thud. I found him in the kitchen. He was on his back on the floor and just, uh, he was still breathing. So I called 911 and I came back. He started to turn blue. You know, the EMS guys arrived and I thought, oh, they'll make it all better. You know, they'll fix it. It'll be okay. We got to the hospital and they were telling me he died. I couldn't fathom it. I just remember I fell on the ground. I was screaming. I felt like everything that I had you know, all, all the ways I had defined my life were going to change. I felt very lonely almost immediately. He'd filled up the house with his big personality and suddenly the house felt very big and empty. What Julie didn't know was that her nightmare was just beginning. Here's what she found out just a few months after her husband dropped dead. Six friends came to the house to help make funeral arrangements. They went to his computer to see if they could uh, find his address book. His email was on and emails started coming in. And they opened them up and saw that they were from women. They, it was very apparent from the content that these were women that he was involved with, that he was having an affair with. When I found out about these women, I was completely enraged and I wanted answers. I got on the phone and called them up. One of the women I called, I spoke to her briefly. They had some kind of affair. I felt a bit cheated in the sense that she wasn't being honest with me. I got in touch with the next woman. She was a mom like me. She was actually very forthcoming. She was very similar to me. She even looked a bit like me. I contacted the third woman. She lived in Argentina. I learned that he really needed to sort of create stories about himself. The next woman was someone that my husband had uh, met at the gym. She stepped right up and her responsibility for it. He had a way of seeking out women who were very vulnerable. He had a way of charming them so that they would feel very loved and appreciated. So Julie's head was spinning, but there was more. One of his affairs was her. The mother of my daughter's friend. Yeah. 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 I saw her every day. She was in my house all the time. I was at her house all the time. You know, my kid had play dates at her house and sleepovers. And in fact, the day I found out about these affairs, my daughter was actually at her house having a sleepover. Mm -hmm. And I had to go pick her up from this woman's house, mm -hmm. which was really something. So, okay, so your husband, was this six women, five women? Uh, all at the same time, or they were sort of interlapping. They were sort of overlapping. Yeah, I mean, one of them, this one with uh, with the mother of my daughter's friend, had been going on for a couple of years at least. Mm -hmm. 
possibly a bit more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was. So what are the signs that you didn't see? You know, I think I had so much invested in being married and, and in our life together. We lived in a small town. We had a lovely house, pretty view. You know, you think mm -hmm. you have kind of this perfect life. And, you know, it, you know, it's never really perfect. I mean, you're, there's always struggles. But, you know, it seemed like a good life. And you just don't want to look always at the, you know, the signs. And if you had looked? I think the signs are, you know, when someone starts talking a lot about you know, another woman that they're spending time with, or even in this situation, I think they use the children in a way as a kind of a cover to come and go mm -hmm. uh, in, in t between homes. Yeah. And I, like I hear that. every affair is different, but in a lot of cases, mm -hmm. this is with women too, generally I hear with mm -hmm. women, particularly if women think they've fallen in love, they just can't shut up about mentioning the guy's name. They just got to get the name in some, somehow. Mm -hmm. And so would he mention names of other? He did, yeah. He would actually tell me, uh, several of these women, he actually um, had mentioned them. He'd been traveling for research on a book, and he would mention them. And he'd say, oh, you know, here's this woman. Uh, you're really going to love her. You know, she's great. She's just like you, he would mm -hmm. say sometimes. Mm -hmm. It was kind of, you know, curious. It was almost as if he wanted me to, you know, press further and ask him questions. But I, I, I so think I was... So talk about her. Maybe, yeah. yeah. But I, I was afraid. I was afraid because it would have meant the end of, you know, finding too much or probing too much would have meant the end of what we had and what, or what I thought I had. So Julie chronicles her story in her New York Times best-selling book called Perfection. Why did you name the book Perfection? Well, you know, I think women are really struggling with this yeah. idea of perfection. Mm -hmm. You know, they want to have, you know, perfect bodies, perfect houses, perfect kids, and, you know, we have a lot sort of a, attached to that idea. Mm -hmm. And I think in the end, uh, I think it causes a lot of misery and shame and women try to hide the parts of their lives or not look at the parts of their lives that maybe they're afraid aren't so perfect. So I wanted to find a way to redefine that word, perfection, mm -hmm. see what else it might mean. Did that word come crashing down for you when, he, when you heard that thud in sure the kitchen? Sure did. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was, I mean, I had had so much wrapped up in my life as being married. That was a big part of my life. I loved him so much, and, you know, he'd been sort of the... Did big... you think he was your soulmate also? Well, you know, I met him. I was young, and, you know, I don't know if I, you know, that word soulmate was the mm -hmm. way I would have thought of it, but when I met him, I'd never been in love like that before. I thought, this is the man I want to be with, and we'll have a, you know, we'll grow old together, we'll raise our daughter, and, you know, that was how I saw my life. I certainly didn't imagine becoming a widow, a young widow, and mm -hmm. having to start all over. And I certainly didn't imagine that I was going to find out what I found out. Yes, and this whole idea that we, we were talking about earlier of looking at your life, and I think a lot of women don't want to rock the boat because things do seem perfect or as perfect as, you know, you can imagine mm -hmm. them to be. You have the picture, yeah. you know, you have, I call it, you have the Kodak view yeah. of, of life, and you don't want to shatter that. That's right. You have a lot invested. You know, you really want to keep that. And I think the more afraid you get at looking, the more, you know, the, sort of the worse binds you get yourself into. And how's your life now? Well, you know, I was, um, I met, uh, you know, it, it took a while for me to be ready. I met, uh, I looked very differently when I decided I was ready to look again. I thought, I want to be with someone very different, you know, who really shares my core values. Your values. And uh, I met a really lovely man who uh, really wanted to be with me and loved my daughter. And, you know, 
we have a great wife. Very different than the big personality. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're kind of more similar. I suppose he's kind of more like me, mm -hmm. you know, in a way. I didn't feel like uh, I have to compete mm -hmm. with him. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the things that we want together are, are very shared. Yeah. yeah. It makes you cry. Why? Yeah. Well, you know, I feel happy. I feel lucky. Mm. Yeah. That you found happiness again. Yeah. yeah. Because during that time, did you think, that's what's so helpful, I think, to so many women who on this day are going to have the same discovery. Maybe not five women. But right. just think of the millions of women watching us around the world right yeah. now. It happens a lot, and yeah. I get lots Some, of letters. A lot of you yeah. are just this day finding out and this moment watching this. And what do you say to somebody? You know, um, I think I found out that I was a lot tougher than than I might have guessed, and uh, that I could, you know, I could manage alone and take care of my daughter alone, and that was really comforting and reassuring. And then I also discovered that, you know, opening my heart again to somebody else could, you know, would be okay, and that I could trust somebody again and, and be with somebody and have a very different kind of life that would be very fulfilling mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and very satisfying. Yeah. It took a lot of work. But, hard to trust know. again, though, isn't it? Yes, it was hard. It took a while. Mm -hmm. it took the book is called Perfection. So when the Bernie Madoff scandal broke, most people wondered how his own wife could not have known something, didn't know anything about his billion-dollar Ponzi scheme. My next guest says she gets it, why she didn't know, because she's been there. Here's uh, Karen's story. Our lifestyle was very opulent. It wasn't um, unusual for us to be spending $100,000 a month on credit cards. Karen was a Yale and Oxford graduate, her husband a hedge fund manager making big money on Wall Street, his company worth more than $50 million. I had no part in any of the finances ever in our marriage, so it was enough for me to be told by my husband that he was working on deals, um, that he was on Wall Street. I didn't ask any further questions. Karen and her husband were living the ultimate dream. They were the parents of two beautiful children, had fancy cars, a multi-million dollar mansion in the country, and three luxury condos overlooking Central Park. So this is Madison Avenue, New York, and this was my playground. And what we couldn't find here, we would go to Milan and find there. The lifestyle involved big, plush estates, luxurious cars, trips to exotic locations, children in private schools. I became very seduced by the lifestyle. Even though their lives appeared to be perfect, Karen says the marriage was rocky at times. There were obviously other women, and there were signs of that throughout. His long absences, you know, being away three days at a time, not coming home till four o'clock in the morning. Karen says she overlooked some of her husband's affairs because she didn't want to give up her Park Avenue lifestyle. Little did she know, it was already unraveling. So at the age of 36, with her third baby on the way, Karen's husband came home from work and dropped a massive bombshell. For the past five years, he'd been conning investors out of money to the tune of nearly $12 million. He was caught, he pled guilty, without her knowing, and listen to this, was headed to prison. So I understand you drove him to prison, right? I did. I'll never forget that morning. He came home at 4 o'clock in the morning, drunk, and I woke to a noise outside the master bedroom. I went out to investigate, thinking it was perhaps one of the children, and I found him tying a hangman's knot. He told me that he'd been told that he needed to go to prison that morning. 
I had no idea when he was going to prison, so it was a big shock that it had happened and he was going. Yeah, so he'd, he'd been indicted by the FBI, and you didn't even know it? I did know prior to this. Uh-huh. But I didn't know when he was okay, going so to prison. OK, so when is he tying the hangman's knot? When was he doing The night before he was due to go to prison. He was going to hang himself? And it was a pretend attempt. It was to elicit my sympathy. Uh-huh. And uh, I pulled him away from what he was doing and uh, ushered him into a cold shower and summoned the strength to get ready to drive him to prison. So we arrived. He was uh, greeted by a prison officer, and the prison officer patted him down in front of me, which must have been humiliating for him, mortifying for me to see. Then he climbed into the prison vehicle, and I watched the vehicle driven away deep into the Air Force base, and I watched his head, the back of his head, get smaller and smaller and smaller, and then he was gone. And then suddenly I was back inside my car, and I can't remember getting back into the car, and I was crying. The tears were pouring down my face. And uh, eventually, somebody tapped at the window, and I looked over, and it was the guard from the gate. And he said to me, are you all right, ma'am? And I nodded, yes. And he said, good, because if you are, you need to move your car for another. And it was my wake-up call that there wasn't going to be any sympathy for me. And there shouldn't have been. I was sitting in a gold BMW at the time. Mm -hmm. But there wouldn't have been no sympathy. And that day began for me an absolute nightmare. And uh, I was soon to find out that the properties would be taken. I, at that stage, I didn't know that they would be. I hadn't been told that he'd put this in the plea agreement. Do, do you share a role in it, though? I mean, do you share a role in it? Yes. Because I, I, I really appreciated the line yes. that you expressed in the tape where you said yes. you were seduced. I think that's a really yes. good choice of words. Mm. You were seduced by all of the wealth and yes. seduced by this this lifestyle. I was. It's intoxicating. It is intoxicating, and money is very seductive, and that mm. lifestyle is very seductive. And yes, I was absolutely seduced. The part that I played was obviously not anything to do with the crime. I had no idea the crime was being committed. Um, my part in, in retrospect, and I didn't appreciate this at the time, it took some time to self-reflect, uh, but my, my part in retrospect was that I, I had some culpability in expecting this lifestyle, in wanting this big lifestyle in expecting that the bills would be paid, in giving up my financial independence. Mm -hmm. I did that without thinking about it. Yeah, would you say the same thing, Barbara? Um, to a degree, yeah. To a degree. It was a different situation. Yeah, yeah. different situations, I know. But and yeah. I'm talking about in sort of, sort of accepting that someone else is going to take care of things. Yes. yes. You talk about that in perfection. Yes. It was very easy for me to give that up because I was, at the time, he began to bring in very big dollars, I began having children. So it coincided with my wanting to spend time with mm -hmm. the children. And I had three, one, two, three, after, one after another. Yeah. So it coincided with motherhood, too. So I think the message in all of this is also what you're talking about. And that is, mm -hmm. even though you have, and if you're fortunate enough to be taken care of, and you yes. have you know, the loveliest of surroundings, and you have access, you should not surrender no. your own sense no. of self worth and independence. Absolutely. Even though you don't have to work. Yes. You shouldn't just give all of that up. Don't. And... Hold on to it. That's yeah. the lesson I learned. And in working, it also validates you. It mm -hmm. gives you confidence in mm -hmm. your, and it validates your talents and your skills, whatever they may be. And I lost that too. I understand you took your husband back after you got out of I, prison? No, I didn't take him back romantically, but I allowed him to come back to the family home when he came out of prison. 
This was three and a half years after he'd been incarcerated. At the time when, he, when I took him to prison, I was so full of anger mm -hmm. that whenever he phoned from the prison, I wouldn't let him get a word in edgewise. I was screaming yeah. at him, how could you do this to your family? How could you do this to your children? And uh, that, that rage took, a long, you know, took up a lot of my energy and I realised mm -hmm. I had to let it go. Mm -hmm. And eventually I did and there were a myriad number of issues that I had to work my way through, one of them working out how to support my children. And eventually, over time, I, I began to look at my marriage in a way a bit more sympathetically, perhaps, and wrongly, I suppose. But when he was writing to me at first, I wouldn't read his letters from prison mm -hmm. because of the anger. But slowly, as I began to have some sympathy for his situation and to appreciate that he still is the father of my children, I did begin to read those letters. And in those letters, he, he was apologetic. He was um, accepting responsibility. He was talking about how he'd suddenly come to appreciate the value of his family. So when he came out, I felt terribly sorry that he had nowhere else to go. He was still the father of my children, and I allowed him to stay. He slept on the couch, but I allowed him to come back into the family home, and wrongly, that, uh, he, that was a facade. I learned after about a month and a half of him, of him being out of prison, he could not keep up the facade, and he really hadn't accepted responsibility. He really wasn't sorry, and his family wasn't his priority, and the same patterns that had been there before started to re-emerge. You need that Maya Angelou yes, lesson. I do. Yeah. Yes, we suffer from that same yes, when problem. people show you who they yes, are, believe that's them. who they are. Yes. That's who they are. So you had an epiphany about secrets in a relationship. I did, and I learned that there's never just one. Mm -mm. Never. Correct. Correct. Mm. There's never just one. No. If there's one betrayal, there's almost always others. Yes. And so that lesson has come hard for you? When you realized the second time, after yes. you allowed him home mm -hmm. and he served the time in prison, yes. and you believed in the letter. Because you know what? When you're in prison, yes. it's very easy to write a sympathetic of letter. I, yeah, I appreciate what you have to do? Yes. <laughs> to say how sorry you yes. are and how much you understand. Yes. And really, yes. you're a different man and right. you saw Jesus and everything. <laughs> yeah. You know, what else is there to do? Right, yeah. right. Well, I appreciate all of that now. You appreciate that yes. now? Yes, So you're saying, though, you believed it at first. I'm, I wanted to believe it. Mm -hmm. it. What was hardest for me to let go was not the lifestyle, not the properties, not the friends. What was hardest for me to let go was the fantasy of my marriage. Yes. I wanted to believe in the fairy tale romance, yes. that it was still there and still yeah. possible. That is such a brilliant thing that you're just saying, because I think for so many women and men, too, mm. who find it hard to let go, yes. what you're really letting go is not what you had. Yeah. Because what you had was a mess. Correct. What you're letting go is the dream yes. of what you wanted to have. That's right. So it's letting go of the dream of what yes. you hoped it could be. And that's the hardest thing to let go of, mm -hmm. yes. And when I did let go of it, there was such clarity. There was such liberty. I felt free to be myself and to move forward. And until I got to that point, he was still holding me back. Mm -hmm. Would you say you were living in a fog? Oh, yes. During your marriage? Oh, yes, yeah. yes, in two ways. Motherhood, I was in a fog because I wasn't getting very much sleep with three yeah. young boys. And no, the fog of affluence, that it and does, the fog of the affluence. Fog of affluence. Yeah. And uh, so you lose touch. And for me, you lose touch with reality. But for me, I also forgot that, hey, you know, I'm an educated woman. I know how to think for myself. I know how to survive on my own. And I'd forgotten those things. And it took this tragedy 
to wake me up. Would you say you'd lost yourself? I did, in completely yeah. lost myself. Yeah. I know a lot of women yes. watching you right now can get yes. to yes. understand that. Yes. How quickly do your rich friends leave you? Like that. Like that. <laughs> That's what yeah. I hear. Yeah. They're gone. Yeah, like gone. that. They're gone, because they're like, don't yeah. come to me for money. No. Right? Well, no, that's right. They're very tight. And in my case, I was living in a community full of Wall Street wives. These were women who also probably really didn't know what their husbands were up to because they were in a wealthy enclave an hour north of Manhattan, and their husbands all week were in Manhattan, staying over in Pierre de Terre's. And so they didn't want to see what was happening to me because just like that, it could be happening to them. Like well, thank you for joining us. Thank, thank you, you very thank much, you Oprah. Karen. Thank you. And thank you to all of our guests today. Remember, somebody shows you who they are, believe them the first time. Bye, everybody. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to The Oprah Winfrey Show, the podcast. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Oprah Show, the podcast. I thank you for listening.